You'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, or page 1029 in your pew Bible, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never go out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
May God bless the reading of his word. The Gospel of Matthew introducing to us Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the king who has come to save his people from their sins. And so last week we began a conversation, a message about the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here, then you know the introduction, you know kind of the trajectory of this sermon. It's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It would take you about uh, 20 minutes maybe to read it all. We read a significant chunk of it this morning, and so you've heard the words of Jesus. Jesus is preaching a sermon here at the beginning of his ministry which clearly defines the believer's hope of entering into and enjoying life in the kingdom. Entering into the kingdom is by grace through faith. We know that. That's the message of the scriptures. And I mentioned last week that many times we have preachers who have preached the gospel as you have to do better in order to get in the kingdom. That's not Jesus' message. So if you go away from here today thinking, man, God is not going to be pleased with me. God is not going to accept me. God is not going to put his grace upon me if I don't do better than I'm doing then you've missed the point of the Sermon on the Mount and indeed the point of the gospel. The gospel says that God can no, have no more love, no more grace for you than he does right now. He will not have any less or cannot have any more. I hope that that will sink into you. Our God has placed his favor upon us. He has redeemed us and that redemption is made effective on us as we come to him, as we said last week, as spiritual beggars. So the king has come and faith is displayed in us as we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy and come to the king as spiritual beggars to be redeemed and made citizens of this forever kingdom. So then the sermon turns to focus on how are the citizens of this kingdom to live? Those who are redeemed, how do we live? What does the change of citizenship look like? And it's not just a change of citizenship, it's a change of us. And so the change in us is then described. We looked at the general uh, uh, perception or the general teaching on that in chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 last week. And he said, you will be salt and you will be light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we said that the rest of the sermon will kind of teach us how we are salt and light. How we are to be salt and light. How God is transforming us to be that. And so in his proclamation of the gospel here... Jesus foresees a major question that will be asked throughout his ministry. And that is, what then do we do with the Old Testament? More specifically, the Pharisees are going to ask, what then do we do with the law? In other words, what about what Moses taught us in the law? What about what we've been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees? So, how does Jesus view the Old Testament? That's where we begin this morning, verse 17. How should we think about... The Old Testament. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, do not think. That is, do not consider. Don't put it in your mind that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a lot said just in verse 17. The word abolish is a very strong word, which means to do away with. Jesus is saying, I did not come to do away with the Old Testament, with the law and the prophets. And by law and prophets, he is encompassing the entire thing. Specifically, we're going to talk about the law this morning. But Jesus did not come to do away with it. Rather, there is a key word in verse 17. I have come to fulfill them. That means we would have to sit and say, if Jesus didn't come to abolish, what does it mean that he fulfills 
the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. I would submit to you this morning that Jesus both accomplishes all that the law and the prophets require, and the law and the prophets find their completion and their purpose, that is their fulfillment, in Jesus. So, twofold, Jesus keeps the entire law and prophets. He is perfect in His righteousness. There is nothing that God has ever said that is righteous that Jesus did not do, did not accomplish. But further than that, the whole law and prophets also find their completion, their fulfillment in Jesus. Why? Because He is God. And the law is the law of God. The prophets are the words of God. So they are pointing to, find their completion in Christ. And so I want you to note a couple of things about Jesus' view of Scripture here, and then we will walk through. That will open the door for us to walk through the text lying before us this morning. I want you to notice three things about Jesus' view of the Old Testament, His view of Scripture, if you will, for those that are talking with Him, those that are listening to Him, both disciples and then Pharisees and scribes are in the area. They're no doubt listening. So three, three very quick Things that I want you to notice. First, Jesus has a high view of Scripture. Look at Jesus' high view of Scripture. He says in verse 18, For I say to you truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. The iota in Greek here, we would probably say that he's talking about the yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the iota, smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He's saying not a yod, not the smallest letter the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, it will not pass away. Nor, he says, the dot. Not the dot. Even that smallest marking that would distinguish one letter from another. I was trying to think about what could I give to us to help us to understand that in English. And if you'll picture in your mind, in our English alphabet, the letter F... And then the one little mark at the bottom of that letter F that would transform that letter into an E, Jesus says not even that one little mark will pass away in the law until it is all completed, until it is all accomplished. Jesus has a very, very high view of Scripture. He's looking at the Old Testament just like you and I should. It is the Word of God. It was not given so that it would be uh, of no use. It will accomplish exactly what it was given to accomplish. And that is to show us the holiness of God. It will show us our sinfulness in comparison to that holiness. It will show us the wonder of Jesus' righteousness and His holiness, and it will find our its fulfillment in Jesus' life. It is pointing every bit of it to Jesus. And He says, not one iota, not one dot, not the smallest letter, not the smallest marking in the entirety of Scripture will pass away until it is all accomplished. And Jesus is here, and He will accomplish Everything in the law. You know that. That's been Matthew's purpose so far. Everything he says about Jesus. Jesus was the son of David to fulfill the scriptures. The son of Abraham to fulfill the scriptures. It's done this way. He goes into Egypt. He's born here. He's born of a virgin. All of this to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus has a high view of scripture. And he says not anything from scripture will pass away. It will all be accomplished. And it is done so in Christ. Secondly. Jesus concerned that his followers both keep and teach the commands of God in the Old Testament. 
So some of us come into the New Testament, and I used to say, some of you will know that J.J. Leslie, one of my best friends on our staff for about four years, he did a Ph.D. in Old Testament, and the only way that I could ever get him riled up is to come into him and say, J.J., why are you studying the Old Testament? That's old. We're in the New Testament. That's new. And I would only say that to him because I think that a lot of us may actually have that kind of view. Well, that's the Old Testament. It really doesn't say anything to us. Jesus has a completely different thing to say to us now about the Old Testament than it's old, right? Uh, Matter of fact, I don't even like calling it old anymore because it's for us. It preaches the gospel to us. And there we get to verse 19. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these... That is the law and the prophets, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Do you want to lose any kind of significance that you would have in the kingdom? Don't study, don't teach the Old Testament. Certainly don't obey what the Old Testament says. Jesus has a concern that you both keep it and you teach others to keep the commands of God. As a matter of fact, entrance into the kingdom is not by these commands. We must teach it that it does not get you into the kingdom. Rather, greatness in the kingdom is this functional righteousness. So if I could say it this way to you, entrance into the kingdom is by imputed righteousness. It's by Jesus. Jesus then teaches here, greatness in the kingdom is by functional righteousness, living by what the law of God and His Word says to us. That is functional righteousness in your life. That is being salt and light, pointing others to glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus has a concern that his followers both keep and teach the commands of God in the Old Testament. Thirdly, I want you to notice Jesus' clear teaching that his disciples' righteousness must must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 20. We mentioned it last week. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We mentioned last week that this very verse is the thesis of this sermon. It is radical. Your righteousness must exceed that of your religious teachers, those scribes and Pharisees, those who had a high view of the law, those who had made all of these rules because they were so careful to take the law of Moses literally. Now, before we move on and try to get our hands on this thesis in verse 20, I want you to skip over to verse 48 with me very quickly. It's the last verse that we read this morning. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is an idea of righteousness, and Jesus is teaching that your righteousness, your perfection, must be that of what God would teach, what God is, and it must exceed that of the Pharisees. And he says at the end, you must be perfect. These are bookends on what Jesus is going to teach us about how to think about the Old Testament, and specifically about the law. There are bookends here of our righteousness. In the first, it must exceed the most righteous religious leaders that they could imagine in their minds. If they didn't believe that the religious leaders were righteous, if they didn't believe that the scribes and Pharisees were righteous, all they had to do was ask them. And they would tell them, we are righteous. This is what righteousness looks like. And then in the end, he says, if you miss that, that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is where we're going to camp out for the remainder of our time. Jesus is revealing for us in this section the true meaning of the law, and we must understand what he is revealing to us. So as Jesus goes into this section, there are, I think, at least two ways for us to take this. 
for those who believe that the law was given as a means of salvation. In other words, if you're here reading this text, and if you walk away today reading this text and think, I need to keep the commands of God so that I can get rewarded with a, as, with a relationship with God and eternal life, then this will lead you into further despair. I couldn't keep it before I came to this text. You come on Sunday mornings, you think, I couldn't do what I needed to do before I got here. And the preacher just said, I need to do more than what I was going to do. You will go away in despair thinking, I cannot have eternal life. I couldn't keep it before. Now there's absolutely no hope. How could I be more righteous than the Pharisees? The Pharisees took the Old Testament seriously. They had found 613 rules that must be followed just in the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. They had made rules about how to keep these rules. However, Jesus is calling for a righteousness greater than that. In other words, what Jesus is going to teach us here, listen, the law is more than just rules. It is about life and love that is acceptable in the sight of a holy God. It is about life and love that is acceptable in the sight of a holy God. And that life and that love of God and neighbor is only developed, nurtured, displayed in a life that has been redeemed by the grace of God. They did not really understand the purpose or the meaning of the law. So if you came here today and your real belief, functionally you believe, if I do good, God rewards me. If I do bad, God punishes me. Then you are going to go away, I think, today, knowing that you cannot do good even more than when you came in. However, for those who by faith trust Christ to have been the point of the law and know that it is fulfilled in Him and by Him, there is a true freedom in this text to be changed into the likeness of Christ. You find here, as a follower of Christ, as one who has trusted Him to be completely righteous on your behalf, you find here an instruction that gives you freedom to be more like the one who died for you. And so today, how are you going to come to this text? This teaching then in these verses becomes precious to us because it shows us a clear picture of God's purpose and His plan in the life of a believer. How God is making us salt and life. The irony here, church, before we jump into these six examples, is that those who keep, try, who keep trying to do the law in order to earn God's favor, they never do. You never get there. It's never enough. It doesn't matter if you convince yourself it's enough. James is going to say, if you've broken the law in one small place, then you've broken the entire law. The irony here is if you keep trying to do it on your own, and you keep trying to earn God's favor by what you're doing, and you try to earn your way in so that when you get to heaven, you stand before God and say, but God, didn't you see what I did? I was better than all of these other people. It's never enough. It ends in pride or despair. If you're trying to do this on your own to earn God's favor, here's where you will end. Let me give you this very briefly. Sometimes you'll succeed. Today, I get up, I do my quiet time, I actually share the gospel with someone. I don't have those sinful thoughts that I had last week. I eat right, I feel good about myself, I do well to my class or my, my small group, I reach out to somebody, I try to encourage somebody. At the end of the day, I pray, I prayed at every meal, and so at the end of the day, I feel really good about me, and what is the problem with that? I feel pride because I've actually done everything right, and I will please God and earn His favor. If you're doing this, so that you can think that you stand before God and He says, man, this is awesome. 
you are such a righteous person, then you're missing the point. But then you have the days where you fail at everything. You get up late, you don't do your quiet time, you don't speak to others well, you drive to work and you're really angry at someone, you almost bump somebody off the road because they pulled out in front of you, you get to work and you're ill all day, you go home, you didn't pray at all, you didn't think about God, you, didn't, you had an opportunity to share the gospel and you missed it and you go home and you, you end up in despair and you think, I can't do this. I can't do this. Doing this for you to earn the favor of God will either end you in pride or despair. Both are sinful. Neither is of the gospel. So you must see this text as God teaching us how to understand the Old Testament. I have redeemed you, God would say. I have given you. You have the imputed righteousness of Jesus on your life. I can have no more love than I do for you right now, God would say, and I will not have any less. So now, because the one who loves us the way that he does and has redeemed us, we now come into his kingdom and say, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I please you? Those who find that the law is fulfilled in Jesus find that they're so overwhelmed by the grace that they have strong desires to please their king. As you can imagine, with three little girls in my house, we watch all kinds of girly movies. So for those of you who make fun of me for this example, go, go for it. I'll still watch it because I love my girls. We end up watching a lot of Shirley Temple movies. Shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. I say Shirley Temple movies. All of you don't. Shirley Temple plays this little girl. It's like there are a hundred of them, and they're all the same movie. But they're different characters in it. So she plays this little girl that is a little orphan girl who is brought into the house of a wealthy patron that has made the decision to rescue her from the horrible conditions of the orphanage. She's talking with the butler before a really important dinner where there's going to be a lot of dignitaries and the one who adopted her is putting on this dinner and she happens to be having this conversation with the butler of the house and she asks about the plate and this and that about what this plate and that plate and this for and that fork and he's trying to tell her and give her instructions about what the dinner is going to be like and she looks at him in one moment and says can I just look at you before I do anything and will you just shake your head if I'm going to do anything that's going to embarrass Mr. Smith because I don't want to embarrass him at all she has been rescued and she wants to make the one who rescued her pleased there's the difference she did not do it in order for him to rescue, but because she has been rescued, she looks and she literally says to him, please don't let me do anything stupid. You read this law and my prayer to our God is, God, you've shown me, don't let me mess up. Let me be holy like you are holy. Let me shine so that others might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, I want to shine because you have shined on me. I want to live for you because you have rescued me. And so this is the kind of righteousness that cannot be of ourselves. It must be of God. In the first sense, it's an imputed righteousness. All of the righteousness of Jesus has been given to us as believers, but it's not only an imputed righteousness. It is a functional righteousness that changes our lives. Listen, God's grace changes us so that we become more and more like Jesus. So that Jesus would show us in these six examples the depth 
of the purpose and intent of the law in contrast to the superficial righteousness that was taught by the religious leaders. That in itself is grace. That Jesus would preach this sermon to us is grace. He reveals how it is that you and I will be transformed by grace to live out the righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. To be transformed into the likeness of the holiness of the Father, that is Jesus. We can be like Jesus and that is how we are going to find this kind of righteousness. So we look at this and say, how can I be more like Jesus? So before we jump into these six examples, let me give you the pattern. Jesus is going to say over and over, you have heard it said. That is in the law, this is what is there, but I say to you, In other words, the authority of the king is coming out. I say to you, your religious teachers took the words of God and they've taught you this about it. But I say to you, here is the true meaning. He is giving a clear contrast to the teaching of the religious leaders. In every case, the law referred to is deepened and it's shown how it is not just the outward act that is important, but the inward attitude that is key. Why would that be? Well, because you do what you do because of what's going on in your heart. It's an inward attitude. Listen to me carefully. As you read this text, I want you to understand, church, what controls my heart, that is my desires, my affections, what I love most, that determines my behavior. I can change my behavior without changing my heart, but I have not truly changed. Jesus says that if you want to come to me and if salvation is being effective in your life, it is not just a change of behavior. Let me say that again to you because I need you to really hear that. Anybody can change their behavior. It will be temporary, but anyone can just change their behavior. There are a lot of people that come to Christ and they come and they make a profession of faith and they change a few of their behaviors. And all of their Christianity, all of their following of Christ is nothing more than changing a little bit of behavior. God is teaching us here, righteousness is not just you changing your behavior. There is not a set of rules that we could hand out today and say, if you will just keep these for the rest of your life, you will make it to heaven. That's not what Christianity, that's not what following Jesus is, not what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about God changing you. And change, true change, lasting change comes from the inside. And so Jesus is going to say, if you thought that following me was all about your behavior, you've missed it. It starts well deeper than that. I can change my behavior without changing my heart, but I have not truly changed. I've just put on a show. Now, before we go in, let me make one more statement. This text is going to point to this fact, and you need to understand it in your own walk with Christ. I can sin in my heart without sinning in my body, but I cannot sin in my body without first sinning in my heart. And the Pharisees were more interested in sinning in my body than in my heart. They didn't care about the heart. As long as what was seen, as long as what came out, was not sinful, then I was okay. And Jesus is going to blow that out of the water. So today, if you want to follow Christ, He's going to say to you in these six examples, I want all of you. Not just the fact that you can sit in a pew on Sunday morning or go to Sunday school or do right here or there. 
I want what's going on in your heart at the level of your love and affection. I want what's going on in your thoughts and your mind. I want all of you or none of you. That's where this ends, right? Go back to verse 20. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot just give Jesus some of your behavior. He takes all of you and he changes you to be like him. Let's look at these six examples very quickly. First, in your anger. In your anger, he says in verse 21, You have heard it said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults, whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes the outward action that probably none of us are really guilty of, and he says, you think that if you don't murder, you're okay. I'm going to tell you, if you're angry in your heart, if you hold anger inside with your brother, if you insult your brother, if you would call your brother a fool, You are liable already. You have already sinned in your heart. So Jesus says you don't have to get all the way to actually murdering someone. You hold it in your heart and you are sinful there. Jesus is saying that anger, something you hold in your heart, is sin. The words that you say, they're sinful. And there's equal punishment here for angry words and murder. You have sinned against God and your brother way before you have wielded the sword to kill him. Notice in verse 23, Jesus' warning here about anger is not only about just you being angry at someone else. As a matter of fact, he goes so much further here. Look at verse 23, what he says to us. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, hold on, Jesus. Not only have you gone so far as to say, I don't murder and I've sinned well before that. Now you're saying, if I have made somebody angry and I remember it when I'm worshiping you, I need to leave my gift right there and go make that right. So it's not only my anger. If I have given someone else a reason to be angry at me, I am still liable. I need to go to them so that we can be reconciled. Do you see what he's saying here? It's not just about don't murder. It's about having right relationships. It's about reconciliation with those that you're angry at or that are angry at you. Jesus says this is something that you know in your heart. You can't just sit there pious and say, well, at least I didn't shoot him. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? Jesus says that your reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ is important. Secondly, Jesus is going to say, beginning in verse 27, your marital faithfulness is important. And it's not just an outward act. You've heard it said, he says, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with with her where? In his heart. You see, there's a thought here that, well, as long as I don't have physical adultery. When I was a young man, I went on a mission trip with a group of people. And I was, even then, sickened. And brought back to this passage as some of the men were talking about a few of the ladies where we were. And I just confronted them. I was a young man. I was able to be uh, um, uh, uh, bold and, and speak out against it. And I had one particular older man on 
the uh, mission trip look at me and he said, Stephen, it's okay to look at the menu as long as you don't order something. This is not what Jesus is talking about as holiness. This is not what Jesus is talking about as holiness. He says, your sin begins well before you've committed adultery. So church, you're sitting here and some of you may have actually been guilty of adultery and you know the forgiveness of God. But for most of us sitting here, we would say, I've never physically committed adultery. And Jesus would say, not enough. Where are your eyes? Where are your affections? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? Not only physical adultery is sin, the intent of your heart is what Jesus is wanting. It's what He's going after. He is not just looking to change your behavior. He's looking to change all of you. Adultery never begins, nor does it ever end with the physical act. There is always sin that begins well before the physical act. Jesus is showing the radical nature of the interchange that grace brings in His instruction here on lust. Look at what He says. This is so important that what's going on in your mind, He says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and cast it away because it's more important for you to be like God, to please Him, to enter into life than if you, you, you lose without an eye, then if you were to enter hell with your eye. He says this, this is radical. Whatever is causing you, whatever is leading you, tempting you to sin in your inner man, in your inner being, then cut it off. This is what I call in counseling radical amputation. Whatever is leading you to sin, not so much physically, but in your heart, Cut it off. Get it out of your life. Some of you today need to think about where are my thoughts? Where is my heart? And you need to start doing some radical amputation, whether that is what you watch, what you talk, where you go, whatever it is, you need to do this radical amputation. Marital faithfulness is what God is after, not just physical adultery. Number three, marital commitment. Verse 31 it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was, uh, in Jesus' day, had been interpreted from the old, te- the old covenant where Moses said, you can give a certificate of divorce. There were men here, and this was, a, this was a male-dominated society, and we won't get into critiquing their society for a moment, but it was a rare thing for a woman to be able to divorce. A man was mostly the one that was able to divorce, and there were two schools of thought on how and why he could actually divorce. The more conservative school said that you could only divorce if your wife committed adultery the more liberal school said if you did not like the way she cooked at home you could give her a certificate of divorce either way you must give your wife a certificate of divorce because if she were to leave if you were to put her out without that kind of certificate she would have no hope of ever getting married of ever having a life because in male-dominated society you could not own property you could not do anything unless you were married and so that was the key Jesus is confronting what is going on in his culture in that society In our culture, we have somewhat of the same kind of mindset. The part of the protection of the the law of Moses here was protecting the woman. And Jesus is saying, kingdom men and women, those who have been redeemed, they look for every reason to stay, not every way out. Let me say that again to you because you and I live in a time where there is a, a shame on those who call the name of Christ, profess 
Christians today are giving a troubling picture of the holiness of our God because of our rate of divorce, even among Christians. And what Jesus is really saying here is it's not only that you try to do everything that you can for that woman or that man so that they're not destitute. He's not saying just do it in uh, good fashion. Go through the right laws. Jesus is saying if you're a kingdom man, if you're a kingdom woman, you're going to look for every reason to stay, not every way out. Marriage is not a temporary bond that can be broken if the bond is no longer convenient to you. It is a lifetime commitment that both displays the gospel and is part of God's sanctifying work in your life. Those who are kingdom men and women look for reasons to stay. Number four, verse 33, oaths. The idea that I only have to actually keep my word when I swear. Look at verse 33. Again, you've heard it said, To those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. The idea here is that I can tell whatever I want to tell until I swear to the Lord. If I swear by heaven or by earth or by my own head, that's when I have to actually tell the truth. But you don't really have to believe me at any other time. You see, it's an idea that we unfortunately hold in our culture as well. And Jesus is saying honesty and integrity will characterize followers of Christ. There is no need for us to swear or take an oath for people to believe us. Note here, very well, he's not speaking of testifying in court under oath. He's talking about an everyday conversation. So, if you say something to somebody and they have to say, do you swear it? Do you promise? That's what he's talking about. The idea that you could just lie to somebody unless you actually say, I swear it or I promise. The idea that if you've ever gone about and told somebody something that is untrue and you've thought in your mind, well, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. I can say anything I want to. That's what he's saying here. Kingdom men and women look for ways to be honest and have integrity in all of their dealings. They don't lie. They don't have to come and say, I promise. Because when they say something, they say it and it's true. It's sin if you and I always are free to say anything we want unless we say, I swear by heaven or I swear by my own hair. He says, don't do that. Rather, kingdom citizens always say what they mean and always mean what they say. He says, let your yes be enough. Let your no be enough. Anything more than that is evil. So live like God. Live the way that God would have you to with honesty and integrity. Don't have people to make you promise because they know that you might lie whether you're promising. You are shining the light of your Savior. So when we say it, it ought to be so. Verse 38, retaliation. The Old Testament had the the law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It was originally intended as a protection for the poor against the powerful. We read this very law called the Lex Talionis in Exodus and Leviticus. It's repeated again in Deuteronomy when we get there. Here, Jesus is saying, do not demand your rights. Rather, go over and above what is required by the law to make your own wrongs right. So if you've wronged someone who is evil, then give him both what is deserved in retaliation and more. He says if he... Deserve, if you are going to be slapped on one cheek, then turn the other also. Give him more than what you have wronged him for. If someone sues you and they win, then give him more than what is right. Don't only let him sue you for your tunic. Give him your coat also. When you have done someone wrong, kingdom men and women make it right and over an abundance so that we can shine the light of our God. And so he ends that in verse 42 by saying, give when you have it, give when you have it, lend to others. In this way, you will shine to those that you have actually wronged in this world. And then finally, in verse 43, he talks about our enemies. 
Verse 43, look at it. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Interesting here, isn't it? The Bible actually actually does say you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's not what they're taught, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not sure why Pharisees weren't teaching that. Jesus is quoting them here. The Bible doesn't say you should hate your enemy. Jesus says, I'm telling you in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, so that you'll be like God. Why? He goes on to say it. If you love those who love you, what different are you than the Gentiles? Anybody that's feeling the love can love others, right? He says, God, he lets the sun shine on all, both the just and the unjust. He sends the rains to bless all, both the wicked and the righteous. So you love your enemies and you'll be like God. You'll be like him. You are commanded. This is the essence of the law is love of neighbor and love of God. And he says, for you, if you want to shine so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, if you want to be salt and you want to have a preservative effect, then love even your enemies. Because in that way, you'll be different from the world. And in every one of these church. Every one of these, Jesus is giving us a picture of how we will be different from the world in which we live and thus point others to our God. My prayer for you this week has been that the Spirit of God would take these examples and drive them into our hearts that you and I might say, Lord, I don't want to do these in order to gain your favor, but because you have invited me to the table, Don't let me do anything that makes you look stupid. Help me, Lord, to put my desires, myself, away, crucified, that I might live like Jesus and be transformed.